0: Welcome back data enthusiasts, you're tuned into another exhilarating episode of the modern data show, where we dive deep into the ever evolving world of the data and its incredible impacts on our lives. Today, we have Sean Knapp, the CEO and founder of Ascend.io, which is at the forefront of data pipeline automation, revolutionizing the way organizations build and manage intelligent data pipelines. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks for having me, Ayush. Sean, so let's start with the very first question. Tell us a little bit more about your background, you know, would love to know a little bit more about SN and what it does, but before we even get into uh, what does SN do, you know, would love to get a backstory of how did it all happen?
1: Yeah, happy to. Um, I'll, I'll try and make it, uh, it, it's getting longer and longer, my background story. So I'll try and, and make it more and more compact. Uh, uh, I started my career as a software engineer, uh, did my undergrad and master's in computer science from from Stanford, way back when. But, uh, my early career was actually at Google. And I think the reason why that's important uh, and, and relevant here was I actually uh, ended up using data pipelines uh, within uh, a month of starting my job at Google in 2004, uh, writing MapReduce jobs to analyze web logs. And while my primary job was pushing pixels on the website and running experiments and doing all these other interesting things, I very quickly found myself being an, an accidental data engineer, even really early on in my career. Uh, and so really for over the last 19 years I've spent a lot of time in and around the data ecosystem was fortunate enough to be an early user of, uh, BigQuery, which back inside was called Dremel, uh, back in the day, uh, when I founded my first company with a couple of other Googlers back in 2007, uh, we, within six months had our own Hadoop cluster, uh, running and we're already running a big data stack uh, and built that out to about a 60 person data, uh, team, uh, before we were acquired, uh, uh much much later uh on as a, a much larger company and you know the the reason why I think a lot of that took me to uh building out ascend was you know for me as a a former data engineer and as a former CTO I really saw that the trends starting to emerge not just around this Hey, every, every company is a software company, which means every company is a data company. But as, as I really looked at, at how a lot of the, the landscape was maturing, it was becoming abundantly clear that that the um, impending sort of challenge that, that really was going to face all of us in the data ecosystem was going to be a productivity of developer challenge, And it was no longer going to be a challenge of size and scale of data, uh, you know, the classic volume, variety, velocity, et cetera. Was going to be how do we, with our limited data engineering resources across every industry and every company, uh, how do we uh, produce more? How do we actually uh, get ourselves out of the weeds and, and really create these really powerful, compelling data products? And to me, that's an automation problem. And so, in uh, late two thousand fifteen. Uh, got a bunch of really great uh, investors excited about this idea, uh, and we started to hunker down and build some really hard uh, technology to, to help us bring in a, a whole new wave of automation into the, the data pipeline space.
0: And how how big is the company? What stage you guys are at right now? Tell us a little bit about the current state of the company.
1: <clears throat> yep, great question. Uh, so the, the company, uh, we've raised $50 million uh, from Tiger Global, Sequoia, Excel, uh, and uh, Lightspeed Ventures. Uh, things uh, our last round was a series B last year uh, we currently have obviously we're headquartered in North America but uh, have recently opened up offices in both uh, APAC and EMEA as well uh, and are, are continuing to grow uh, pretty nicely even despite the the macro market headwinds today we have customers around the globe, uh, and across industries too, which we're we're very flattered and excited about.
0: Okay, amazing. And uh now let's dive deeper into what does Ascend do. Tell us a little bit. You know, I, I got, saw through the website, and uh, you know, one thing that uh, kind of uh, caught my attention is the way you have described three different planes within uh, you know pipeline automation, which is the build plane and control plane and ops Tell us a little bit more about that and tell us why do people even need something like Ascend and why not something like, you know, plain old simple Airflow DAX? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I, I think the it, it helps us at, at first
1: to think about this notion of an operations plane, a, a control plane, and a build plane uh, as despite it being a little bit more academic of a, of a philosophy here, uh, we find in most maturing technology spaces, uh, that, that we do need a, a, a architecture around this. And you know, I think as we think about the, the modern data stack and, and all the amazing innovation that's happened over the last few years, we've seen this massive surge and I would contend sprawl at the same time of all these amazing tools and technologies without a, a well-designed framework and architecture uh, around this uh, that pushes a huge amount of burden on engineers to then go and integrate. Uh, and it, and it feels oftentimes like we're all just writing a ton of code, connecting all of these various systems uh, together, which feels very brittle, uh, and ends up ends up ha- us being a lot more around connection engineers versus actual platform and data pipeline engineers. And so when we think about a framework, we think about it in this notion of operations control and build. And, and really the important part here is when we think about a control plane, the evolution of most uh, mature technology spaces and and those that have something that's continuously running, generally it moves from an imperative world to a declarative world. And if we think about Airflow, Airflow is an imperative scheduler and, uh, an amazingly powerful, uh, tool and technology. But when we think about imperative schedulers, they generally operate on timers and triggers. Um, but they're, they're, they're generally not overly intelligent tools. And when I say intelligent tools. They're very powerful, but they run code on timers and triggers and they produce side effects and they're unaware of the side effects that they produce. They just generally know that you run one task after the other based on the dependency chain. And the reason why that becomes very scary is the side effects of your code then have ripple effects across your ecosystem. And the thing that's driving, and powering that uh, is unaware of those side effects. So it can't help you do anything about that, right? When you're. Writing a pipeline and you read some data and you write it somewhere else, it doesn't know the nature of that data. It doesn't know, it oftentimes doesn't even know that it wrote that data. That burdens on you as an engineer to track that and register it and trace the lineage and validate it, do all the other things. What we see in, in, in rapidly maturing spaces, like, uh, for example, container orchestration with Kubernetes, you go from a, a simplistic scheduler based model, which is classically an imperative construct, into but really is a context aware domain specific control plane, which is really fancy way of, of being like a really smart, badass scheduler. And the idea behind that is when you can make that shift, you can move into a declarative model where that new model allows the system to actually understand what is happening when you run code. What are the side effects of that code? What is it producing? What is the dependency chain? Uh, and as a result, then a developer, we can lean on that automation factor for the control plane to do all the things that could break on us. Uh, and instead we can get a lot higher productivity. We can pull ourselves out of the weeds. And so when we think about this notion of a control plane, uh, what it really amounts to is it it is like a scheduler, but it's a declarative model. It uh, tracks incredible amounts of metadata. Uh. And it ends up becoming this metadata backbone and BUS. And that's how it connects up to this upper level, this operations plane. Because everything we do on operations, reliability, costing, observability, et cetera, all taps into that same metadata. But the power is on a control plane. You can now actually just uh, lean on it to drive more of the activity and track the side effects and and the the operations, the metadata tied to that, uh, which really helps connect those, those two other planes.
0: Understood. And uh, tell us, uh, you know, uh, you know, I saw that uh, on the website, and you know, about reading the product is you, uh, you know, Ascend as a company tries to capture the entire value chain of the data you know uh, i think so you know i saw you got around like 300 over over 300 connectors that allows you know people to pull in data from various operational systems put it into a data warehouse and you know kind of manage the entire data kind of life cycle uh, that approach is quite a typical when we are talking about companies within the modern data stack, where what you see is a lot of companies targeting very specific problem within the data, uh, you know, lifecycle and kind of going deep into that. What's your take on that? What's your take on going broad versus going deep into something? Yeah, I
1: think I think it's a really good question, I, and I I think you you need both. Um, the, the the one part that I want to be really clear on first is, uh, you know, Ascent has really deep partnerships and really deep connectivity with a, a large amount of the ecosystem. You know, obviously we're really close partners with Snowflake and Databricks and Amazon and, and Google, um, but we also partner with a lot of other companies. We have many uh, customers who are are on the observability side using Monte Carlo or Great Expectations. Uh, we have a number of customers who are using uh, third party catalog tools that we integrate with. Um, we actually partner with a company called CData data to offer up uh, so many data connectors at the same time. And so while we, um, while it, 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 certainly looks like an end to end solution. Part of our, 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 goal and value prop is to pull together a lot of these capabilities, it's tied to that metadata bus that powers that control plane itself. Um, but the, the reason why I think this is so important is in, in nascent and very early technology spaces, you tend to see this massive proliferation. Uh, of tools, as uh, people sprint to to, to really uh, create a huge amount of value in, in particular vertical spaces uh, tied to the larger space. And when we think about the the maturation cycle uh, in technology, uh, never mind vendors and all the other stuff, but just like as technologists here, you um, tend to see a lot of you know it starts with a bunch of <laughs> pit packages you're going to install, and then you know th- that eventually evolves into some very verticalized SaaS tools, and and over the course of time you start to see uh, fewer vendors and fewer technologies and that they actually go wider. And the reason is uh, in the early days, as it's this gold rush of which teams for which companies can harness the power faster, you get really, really high horsepower teams build up a lot of these capabilities. What happens, however, is tech that starts to set uh, set in. And we spend all of our time integrating all these tools, all these technologies, and this, the speed at which the space is evolving too, you know, we have the saying internally, which is last year's innovation is next year's anchor holding you back. And so what we see with a lot of teams is they built these really impressive stacks, pulling together a bunch of, of tools, but all of a sudden the space is moving so fast and you're trying to stay ahead. And so now you're spending 80% of your time just on tech debt. And trying to evolve your stack while everybody else is sprinting past. You. And that becomes this, this very exasperating and, and emotionally challenging thing, that we see with a lot of teams where last year, you were the team way out ahead. You were writing your medium posts about how awesome it is and all the, the cool things you have. And now you're desperately just trying to keep up with everybody who read your, your medium blog posts and was like, Hey, we can do that plus one. And now they're out ahead of you. Uh, and so what happens is, uh, over the course of time. Uh, we think of it as sort of like a high watermark. And, and over the course of time that the most common patterns and the best practices become far more clear and uh, as those patterns become really emergent, the benefit is, is less around grabbing a bunch of uh, point solutions and integrating. And instead we think there's this huge value in having a, an automation layer. Very similar to how Kubernetes is, is a, an automation and, and control layer for a really broad and diverse ecosystem. And so when we think about a send strategy, our goal is to actually take the, the depth and the breadth of the ecosystem and pull it together uh, so that it is a more seamless and lower maintenance burden and far more automated uh, outcome uh, for uh, users and, and, and customers, for us, of course, but that allows them to stay up with that pace of innovation as opposed to fall behind as, as they try and pull everything together themselves.
0: Amazing. And uh, tell us, uh, Sean, tell us a little bit more about the kind of customers you work with. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about the stage. Uh, what kind of, you know, when does, when does in their life cycle a customer would be an ideal fit for you? Are you or do you work mostly with early stage companies, mid scale companies or enterprises or like, you know, the, you know, giga size companies? Uh, all the above.
1: And I'd say the uh, you know, we, we certainly find, you know, uh, the, what we describe as an inverted bell curve of, of resonance to be, to be really clear with, uh, with folks, you know, we find, uh, we have some of our smallest customers are literally data or analytics engineering teams and small startups or just small businesses where, you know, it's uh, a, a guy and a gal and a dog is like the whole team. Uh, and they're just building out their first, you know, first major deployments. Uh, At the same time, we have folks who are fortune 100 uh, multinational conglomerates that are running complete multi-cloud, multi-data cloud data uh, data meshes uh, and leaning heavily on the automation. I think that's part of the the excitement about it is that the power of automation actually serves both. Uh, The power of automation gives a small team tremendous leverage, it also gives these Huge organizations with incredibly complex data ecosystems, the same kind of leverage, which is really neat. Um, The the thing that I highlight with two in the middle, uh, we have a lot of tech startups. Uh, They may have 20 to 50 person data teams, uh, and they use Ascend to really automate a lot of their pipelines. You know, I I would say the, um, why I talk about the, the inverted bell curve of resonance, most data teams tend to go on a two to three year architectural cycle. Uh, and, uh, we're, we're finding this less today, but we do find that, that, you know, teams tend to, to, to get emotionally and intellectually pot committed to a particular architecture. And so if they've recently committed to an imperative architecture, uh, they're generally not in a position to to re-evaluate and say, Hey, I actually want to go to, uh, an, a declarative model. Uh, and so we, it's, you know, to me, it's very similar. Uh, Kubernetes is a really hard sell to a team that just decided they really want to go on Docker Swarm or you know do their own manual container orchestration.
0: Right, and uh, Sean, uh, another thing is, how does the whole implementation process looks like? Because we are talking about a lot of you know moving uh, elements here, you know, uh, and I would assume that uh, probably no customer of yours would realize the value of all of these moving components from day one. What's the typical journey of uh, customer, uh, you know who implements Ascend, and how does that journey evolve?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, we, obviously we we first start to to get touch points with customers in in two ways. One, but we have a, a classic Salesforce that's going to go knock on your door, and hopefully you answer because I promise they will make your life much easier and you'll be much happier. Afterwards, as as, and they're amazing amazing people. Um, The other is we have a a free cloud offering. So we actually have a free developer tier and it's free forever. You can go to cloud.sn.io, uh, and simply sign up for a free account, uh, and use it to power your data plane, whether it's Snowflake, Databricks, or BigQuery, uh, and both tend to to start with Ascend. Um, for our, our larger, uh, customers who generally come through, uh, we'll do, uh, week we can with them, we actually will help them, uh, really learn and understand about this, this declarative model. Um, but where we, we usually focus on with folks is, Hey, don't try and just re-architect everything from day one. Uh, we also try and get people to stay away from feature and function. Like the, the, the death by spreadsheet, of you do this thing and this thing and this thing, which, which is, is generally like, you know, trying to make decision by, um, by mass grade consensus, uh, tends to slow down a lot of folks. Um, where we usually, uh, see folks really adopting this end is, Hey, what are your core principles? And it's usually lower maintenance burden, faster development cycles, better data reliability. Uh, and it's the team saying, Hey, we want to go move faster. And so usually what we uh, we first start to engage folks is, Hey, go pick Two or three data pipeline use cases, the things that are like just driving you crazy with your existing architecture that are really painful, that are really expensive, that are really uh, slow uh, to either uh, build new capabilities on top of, or just simply maintain. Um, And it's amazing how fast literally within days to single digit weeks, low, low single digit weeks, entire systems uh, can be uh, migrated over and put on full autopilot And, and Truly running intelligent data pipelines, uh, and so that's the, the beauty of data pipelines. Is usually you can connect them even across disparate systems, uh, and that's where we we see a lot of the the initial adoption. Uh, and then a lot of customers uh, we see generally have mandates, which is, hey, if something's running, just leave it. Don't try and migrate it over. But the second it you know it goes bump in the middle of the night and wakes somebody up, uh, migrate it to Ascend as the maintenance burden's way lower. Things just don't break uh and uh generally it'll also be more cost optimized too. Uh
0: and Sean, how do you uh quantify the ROI for the investment in a SN?
1: Ah, good question. Uh I, I think there's there's uh, two or threefold. Um the the obvious one is just actual like dollar cost. Um the things that we're able to do as an automated platform are really hard. Uh, to do with manual pipelines, like with a, a classic just airflow orchestrated pipeline. So, a really good example would be um, we're able to do things uh, like uh, generate individual jobs per partition to optimize incremental data propagation. Uh, so, you actually can run on smaller warehouses more efficiently and, and compress your cost. Uh, we also are able to do things like uh, job and data deduplication. So, if you're doing dev to stage to prod workflows, we're able to deduplicate all of the work associated with that, uh, which uh, reduces your, uh, your, whether it's your Snowflake, your Databricks footprint uh, significantly. Thirdly, uh, we're able to do really advanced things like mid-pipeline uh, pausing, restarts, rollbacks, uh, which also reduces your cost uh, as you don't have to replay all of your data for all time and, and so on. So there's a lot of these really advanced capabilities that, that just helps you actually optimize your spend. So that's the easiest one. Uh, The second one part that I think really matters as well is uh, both a combination of uh, developer sat and uh, productivity. Uh, This is one where, you know, most teams are now being asked to do twice as much with hopefully the same resources, hopefully not even fewer resources. But in in the current market landscape, what happens is we see a lot of, of companies they're freezing their headcount or they're even reducing their headcount. But They're not actually changing the demand on their team, which really sucks for their team because you have these incredibly talented, hardworking data experts who now have to maintain just as many data pipelines. But if you, when you cut headcount, the maintenance burden generally doesn't go away. So now even for the people you kept who, 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 who are awesome, you're disproportionately pushing up more and more of their, their time and their workload to maintenance and sustaining work. Uh, and that makes it really hard on, on those teams. And so both from a, can you help make them more productive, but even more importantly, from a, a stat perspective and all the residual effects of, of happier developers, and you actually get technology embedded that offloads all of the, the maintenance stuff and frees your, your really high power uh, team to go build new things again, uh, which is what everybody's wanting to do. Uh, that's where we see a, a continued expansion uh both in sat reduced uh, attrition and, and then just the overall productivity of the team
0: itself amazing and we have talked a lot about you know automation so let's talk about the you know one thing that is on everyone's everyone's mind is generative ai uh sean yeah. how do you think uh, you know two questions yeah one is what should we expect in essence offering when it comes to having generative ai capabilities that can help your customers and the second thing is more general in the industry or specifically in the data industry where do you think generative ai would be an incredible game changer
1: yeah so, so i think the you know our telegraph uh the or users can expect that ascend will uh, really march down what I would describe as a co-pilot, not autopilot strategy for AI. The, uh, and, and the the reason why I, I think that this really matters is, um, you know, one, we're very careful and sensitive to, uh, the tiers of, of things that we can use AI for, um, I think of it as the, from a data sensitivity perspective, it, the first tier is just purely. Uh, things AI can help with that requires no customer context whatsoever. Second is, uh, things AI can help with that requires, uh, metadata context. For example, how many jobs are running? What's the performance of those? What's the code, uh, that that's running, uh, but doesn't require data, uh, access itself and then the third tier is, is things that requires actual data data. Um, and we're obviously very sensitive as we, we move through those levels and, and where we're demarking right now is, is going to be after that second level. Uh, and we'll be very cautious as, as to how we, we step into that third level. The, when we think about the effect that this has on data engineering in general, the framework that I like to look at is really a, from pretty much all of us white collar workers, the vast majority of our jobs is broken up into two, three stages for every task. And then we wash, rinse and repeat. Uh, the three stages are ideate, create and refine. And the place where we actually spend the vast majority of our time is in the middle on, on the creation part. Uh, this happens to be where AI is very, very good. And moreover, I I would contend this tends to actually be the most boring part of the job. Because it's fundamentally limited by the laws of physics and like the slow laws. For example, how fast can our mouths move or how fast can our hands type? And over the course of my 20 years of my career, I've generally found that ideation is when I'm running at the highest clock speed. Creation is when my brain is, is just getting really frustrated because my hands simply can't type fast enough people with how fast I want to experiment and explore ideas. Uh, and then on the refinement it's actually pretty fast again. And, and so when we use this kind of framework, uh, I think AI has tremendous potential because for me, I would love to run at max clock speed all day, every day, like I get so excited by all the amazing things I could go do. If I, if I could just get my hands, you know, metaphorically speaking to a type as fast as my brain can go, that would be amazing. And so. When we think about that and really then turn our focus to how can we leverage AI in the creation of what we do? Uh, I think there's a few different examples and, and to continue on down this general theme of, you know, frameworks of threes. Um, I, I think there's, there's three things that, that we can use AI for in that, that particular one, um, really obvious one first is the things that we as engineers just hate doing, like. No engineer likes documenting their code. Uh, No engineer likes analyzing performance data to provide recommendations, et cetera. Or no engineer, most engineers don't like writing tests uh, or data quality checks. AI is awesome for this. Uh, It's actually very good. Generative AI is very, very good at analyzing code and describing what it does. And imagine analyzing all of the code of a pipeline with all the metadata around the lineage and then the performance metrics This would be amazing. And, you know, I think this is one of the easiest places to really start to, to help and delight users because it just makes our job so much easier. I think then the next stage really becomes into that. How do I do X and teaching and training? Uh, we see a lot of our users are really excited about bridging from SQL to Python and. Look, man. Like I, I've been coding for 19 years. Literally, it, it, you know, even as a, a CEO of a startup, I still spend my weekends coding. And there's parts of Python where I'm still like learning things new every day. And so I can only imagine somebody coming from a SQL world to, to a Python world and trying to write a, a Snowpark for Python transform or a PySpark transform and trying to understand all the, those nuances. This is where a generative AI can be really helpful, and just help people bridge and learn. Really new, powerful skill sets at an order of magnitude of, of speed, faster than they could ordinarily, which is super cool. Like that part, I'm really excited about. It's like an Iron Man suit for everybody that wants to go be a data engineer. Uh, so that's the second. Uh, and then I think that the third really gets into the, uh, and this is still in the, the what I call the, the creation domain, um, but really in the um, how to help me optimize. Uh, we already see, uh, as we do a lot of our internal prototyping experimentation, generative AI can be really good at helping you optimize your code. Like, you know, you're trying to sessionize user data and you're doing a big join versus window functions. Um, and like things like that, that just help you, uh, by analyzing the complexity. Uh, I think again, really like, all three of these together really compress down the, this the cycle of creation. Uh, that gives the users this incredible power. And the reason why I think this is so cool, uh, and I think is really important theme too, as we've certainly had these conversations internally, I understand that there's a lot of fear, uh, around is AI coming for our jobs. And the thing that I think about and in the way that I look at this is AI is actually an accelerant for every individual that embraces it to, pr- to propel their way through their careers. Uh, as you use AI to learn more, when AI gives you an answer to something, dissect it, learn from it. Like it it just short circuited you Googling and reading stack overflow for the next like half hour. Uh, Um, and so not only does it do that, but it actually helps propel you into an architect style role so much faster. Uh, and it helps you ideate and move pieces around on the, on the puzzle board faster, uh, and really flex those muscles way faster. And so wh- how we look at it internally, and how hopefully you know, we're trying to help a lot of our customers look at it is this is just like it just up levels so much of your team uh, and gives everybody these superpowers they just didn't have before
0: wow that 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 was an amazing thought, uh Sean. And you know, as we inch closer towards the end of the episode, let me leave uh with some parting thoughts uh in terms of. Where do you see the modern data stack to evolve from here you know modern data stack itself has seen a lot of ups and downs you know it has seen all its you know peaks and throws now. what do you think is the the future of the whole modern data stack itself
1: yeah so I think the I think we have a really exciting future you know when I look at this and if I zoom out and I look at the macro market you know the the big data industry is hundreds of billions of dollars of annualized revenue, which is not that, this is not the TAM for for the MBS. But um, when I look at our our macro ecosystem, it is so large that it can sustain trillions of dollars of market cap, which I think is really, like that's the first thing I anchor on is the data space is massive and amazingly large. And so it can't sustain tremendously large number of really interesting companies really large companies what i think happens against the the current backdrop uh, i do think we'll see some compression on the number of companies uh, and, and this is very natural right you hit this the, the nascent stage of any market you get this like, massive explosion of all these really cool companies and 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 you know it kind of reminds me of that old saying of are you building a um a tool a product or a company and oftentimes it's unclear. And so I think we're going to see a lot of tools and even products start to get merged in. I think that gets accelerated a little bit, just given that the macro market funding cycle too, I think yeah. well, because of how hot the data space was, a lot of companies raised a lot of money and really spiked their burn. Uh, and so it, it, I think that puts a, a number of companies in fairly precarious positions. And so I think that's going to accelerate some compaction. We already see this, We we see. Uh, Snowflake and Databricks doing a number of acquisitions, small ones, small talking acquisitions right now, but I think that will continue. Um, and then I think what, what happens uh, over the course of time is we'll end up with a a smaller number, but more holistic, broader companies that have a broader product portfolio. Uh, and in doing so we'll see those companies continue to grow. I think it just as, as. you know, I, I think of it as a kind of a, uh, like a, a bit of a pyramid in the sense of as the space matures, you get everybody gets pushed up towards the top. And so you see consolidation as you get much larger players. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll continue to see that while at the same time, seeing a lot of still really exciting new companies and, and new sort of uh, parallel and emergent spaces.
0: Perfect. So uh, Sean, thank you so much for your time for the episode again. And uh, I hope uh, both us and all of our listeners had an amazing uh, time listening to this whole episode. So thank you again for your time. Thanks for having me.